Hello, and welcome to this edition of Secure Networks, the Endace Packet Forensic Files, with your host, Michael Morris. This week's very special guest is Andrew Stewart, Senior National Security and Government Strategist at Cisco. Andy, thanks for joining us, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Hey, Michael, it's great to be here. I've been with Cisco for the last four years, supporting our national security, defense, and, and federal customers. Uh, so I get to work closely with our customers and our systems engineers to develop secure solutions for government. Prior to that, I spent just over 30 years in the U.S. Navy, so I, I am a little familiar with government. <laughs> uh, my last tour of duty being uh, running the Navy's cyber operations for Admiral Gilday, uh, who was commander of Fleet Cyber Command, U.S. 10th Fleet. Uh, and I also served as the commanding officer uh, and ACAT-2 program manager at Navy Cyber Warfare, De Warfare Development Group. So it's great to be here. Uh, thanks to Endace for having me. Oh, well, we certainly appreciate you joining us. And first, thank you for your service. Um, your experience is actually why I was so excited to have you as part of our series here. Um, and with all your experience in national security and you know government agencies, let, let, I, I want to get your thoughts on all the new policies and recommendations and mandates coming out for cybersecurity standards uh, and processes, both you know some of the CISA standards and White House mandates. Is is it enough considering the risks uh, from nation state threat actors? I, yeah, I think what we're seeing from multiple agencies in terms of policies and recommendations, particularly all the updates and efforts coming out from CISA under Jen Easterly's leadership have been outstanding and very impressive. Uh, and together, these efforts are raising the awareness that cybersecurity is a C-suite uh, or mm -hmm. a company board issue. You know, in the Navy is what we refer to as commander's business. Uh, right. But all of these efforts, for sure, are helping organizations prioritize cybersecurity with greater urgency than before. Uh, and and I, I like that you've called out the threat because I think taking a threat-based approach, whether it's nation-state ransomware or improving internal practices while ensuring uh, the efficiency of an organization is super critical. Yeah, it's well, from, from an outsider's perspective or a civilian perspective, I guess, it's just... Um seeing so many of these ransomware for hire places, you know, and, and uh, threat actor groups for hire, it, it, it is concerning. So what are some areas uh, you think departments and agencies maybe could be doing a little bit more in? Well, I think what we're learning uh, collectively uh, is that the overall organizational resilience uh, is critical across all mission functions, not just day-to-day -day operations, but certainly supply chain, how we're transforming the way we work with now a huge portion of the workforce uh, going remote. Uh, so I think throughout all that, security resilience is especially critical since it underpins everything. Uh, and that really shouldn't surprise us either. Uh, agencies and organizations have been adding more and more focus on data-driven capabilities. Uh, that's to drive uh, more efficiencies, use advanced analytics or, you know, machine learning. Uh, you know, it's really data that fuels an organization's mission success. So simultaneously with that, you've got businesses and governments are, mm -hmm. you know, have this heightened awareness of how the rapid deployment of technology uh, and the importance of managing risk uh, is important. Uh, so understanding this digital dependence uh, in terms of risk has got to be integral to an agency's or organization's digital transformation. So when you put all that together, uh, thinking in terms of security resilience, it helps us prioritize efforts to ensure, you know, the basic day-to-day -day data confidentiality, integrity, integrity and availability uh, is something that we, something we always have to do. But now we're thinking about that in terms of 
what it means to maintain mission integrity while withstanding threats and changes to the environment. Uh, in terms of being resilient, it means being able to uh, handle those threats and come back stronger. No, that, that's a great point. And you mentioned resiliency a number of times there. Um, I've talked to more CISOs over the past year <clears throat> that are really focusing on this idea of building resilient security architectures. It's not if, but when you're going to be breached. So the question needs to focus on how resilient you are. That's what they keep telling me. So where do you see most organizations lacking in their resiliency? I think organizations are are in that journey where they're realizing that you can't solve for this in a static kind of way. It's far more dynamic and it has to be integral to the operations of the whole organization. Mm-hmm. So really embedding it in everybody's sort of day-to-day mission tasks and functions. Uh, you know, my experience in the Navy uh, and the Department of Defense makes me, makes me think about resiliency, uh, particularly security resiliency, as an integral part of day-to-day operations. Um, and by, by you know, operating in a dynamic environment, I mean, it's not simply about being reactive to the environment. Uh, it's about we're thinking more to more in terms of a continuum. We're no longer kind of approaching uh, an alert or simply, you know, one threat centric uh, approach. We're thinking about much greater mission context uh, in terms of uh, the environment. Uh, so now we're asking uh, new questions about the environment uh, and, you know, we have to find what threats matter to us most right now. We All need right. to know where we're exposed or indirectly exposed to risk and how we're going to make progress. Uh, and understanding that all in terms of mission context are important to any organization. And again, it's what we refer to as uh, in the DOD as commander's business. So I think th- through the lens of security, resiliency uh, requires an approach different from what the past offered. We're going from point right. solutions uh, that were built in a siloed strategy. And now we're thinking much more in terms of uh going from prevention to detection response and recovery. So we're, we're out of that siloed environment and we're much uh, in a much more highly connected environment. And that's why it's so much more dynamic. No, that's a great perspective. And you know, obviously being in the Navy, you guys had contingencies and resiliency plans for pretty much everything. So <laughs> that, that, that was the mindset uh, that I think your experience in, in the security industry is sharing with, with broader leaders. We met at Billington uh, Cybersecurity Summit this this past month, uh, and and a big topic of that event, as you know, was um, this whole concept of zero trust. First, what does that mean for you? And do you think most organizations are ready to take on all that zero trust really means? Yeah, I think for resiliency, it's absolutely critical to bring uh, zero trust philosophy into an organization uh, and start doing those rep reps and sets. Uh, in daily operations. So zero trust, I think of as not one technology, it's much more of an approach or philosophy that underpins the ability to build resiliency. Uh, Taking a zero trust approach helps by taking an integrated design and operational approach to any organization's security, networking, uh, and applications uh, that are required to run the mission, do the day-to-day job of the uh, agency. So uh, what is zero trust in its most ba- basic form? It's all about the relationship between subjects uh, and which are users and devices and resources, which are you know data and workloads. And you can think about zero trust implementation and operations in a four-step continuous cycle. First, you establish trust, you enforce trust-based access, you continuously verify trust, 
and you are able to respond to changes in trust. Uh, and again, it's focusing on that relationship between users and devices, data applications and workloads. And so by applying this philosophy, agencies are able to better realize security resilience. So I recommend to a lot of organizations to really just open up and read NIST Special Publication 800-207 and really understand everything in it. Because, you know, they're generally being inundated by a lot of buzz and about a lot of contradictory information about what zero trust is. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not really aligned with that uh, NIST guidance, which is the underlying guidance in reference to those directives that we talked about earlier. No, that, that's a great point. And I, I love that you referenced the, the, the standard and the, the, the specification around it. Um, you, you hinted to it, you alluded to it in your last answer a little bit here, but what are some specific ways uh, moving to a zero trust model uh, can really enhance your security resiliency that we talked about? Uh, sure. I mean, and one that's really important to me uh, and it comes straight from NIST uh, again, and it's actually one we talked about at Billington on our yeah. panel. Uh, but when you when you jump into the NIST special pub publication, you know it says an enterprise cannot uh, determine what processes or systems uh, need to be in place if there's no knowledge of the current state of operations. Uh, so it kind of begins with that mm -hmm. fundamental visibility and understanding. It's you know the kind of basics uh, commander's business again. Uh, <laughs> and so NIST says, hey, you can't do a zero trust deployment without, you know, really involving uh, in developing access policies that are around acceptable risk to a designated mission business or process. And you have to, um, before you take on that effort to bring zero trust into an enterprise, you need to have a survey and understanding of all the assets, uh, subject, you know, data flows mm -hmm. and workflows in the environment. And so it really actually goes back to doing all those, those things that we were supposed to do right. that were described in the NIST risk management framework, you know, that RMF. But I think what's what's exciting now is we're able to do that more dynamically. Um, so it's much more critical to have the visibility to be able to map those data flows, understand them, mm -hmm. document what's normal, and think through the mission or business process in context of the threat and the risk to the organization. Uh, and then you can start really implementing policy and make sure you're able to assess and monitor uh, and are prepared to make changes and respond. So in your path to resiliency, visibility is key to understanding all those business flows or mission flows uh, so that you're able to implement good zero trust principles and policy, and you can do that efficiently and are able to, to respond. No, that, that's an excellent point on that. Uh, that's why I want to hit on my next question is there's a lot of details and complexities <laughs> into building a zero trust architecture. Um, so it's a lot to take on for a, an organization. So what are some first steps or approaches you might have suggestions for a CISO or a SecOps team to really begin to plan out or adopt or evolve to a zero trust model? Uh, no, I, I think it's good. And I, a great question. And if I haven't said it before, you know, the zero trust principles really are to never assume trust, always verify trust and enforced least privilege. Yeah. Uh, and embedding these principles across an enterprise is definitely not easy, as you say, uh, and it can get super complicated. Uh, and so that's really why having a strategy is key. Um, mm -hmm. How you address those principles requires a strategy that involves thinking through the network and security suite as a platform with capabilities uh, made up of underlying technologies, um, which people will be operating uh, 
through processes mm-hmm. uh, and to ensure that throughout that Whole cap- that whole platform capability, you're able to eliminate excessive trust and continually uh, enforce explicit trust. Um, so ease of use, interoperability, and time to value are all critical when you start thinking through this. And, and definitely leveraging capabilities that are already in the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it's you can't just uh, impact all the workers, uh, you know, who are used to existing processes. So how do you actually get value of what you have um, ensure that worker productivity uh, adoption for the user community mm-hmm. uh, and overall ROIs is, is super important. Uh, we've seen zero trust uh, security payoff in big ways for businesses mm-hmm. uh, in terms of not only better security and higher performance and faster threat response, but uh, you know certainly decreasing the risk of data breaches. Um, we've seen customers who have a nearly 200% ROI by enabling hybrid work and optimizing the security team's performance and being more efficient. Uh, SOC teams can be faster in their responses. Uh, and we've been able to deliver a 90% increase in SOC efficiency uh, to our customers. So in terms of one scenario you could think about, uh, just as an example, uh, you know that, that SOC having an XDR solution that provides visibility, analytics, and automation along with orchestration and governments mm-hmm. in a cohesive way across the zero trust platform so you can respond to changes in trust uh, and you know unify visibility all across those control points you know from identity device right. network application data uh, and those tools have a natural integration uh, inter- interoperability with, with each other so like Cisco secure network analytics works naturally with our firepower firewall and can effortly mostly work you know with full cap packet you know capture solutions like endace so that when you're in incident response mode you can really find the threat get to the bottom of what's going on in your uh, environment and respond interoperability is the one thing I, there's so many point solutions on the market right now and and being able to tie things together to make it efficient which really leads to my next question um because we haven't touched on this but we talked about it when we were together in in washington was uh the training and the technical competencies needed across uh, certainly the SOC teams, but really, as you mentioned, the entire organization to have that resiliency, um, especially for you know full zero trust architecture. So what can organizations do to, to help in the development and the training of their analyst teams, of their, their security uh, analysts themselves to, to really have the right competencies? I, I, I'm glad you, you know, brought in the people <laughs> aspect of it because, you know, at the end of the day, technology should be, you know, providing good processes that enable people, you know, instead mm-hmm. of people always having to develop uh, processes because, you know, technology doesn't work together. Absolutely. Um, I, it's super uh, relevant right now. Um, Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and building a part of that future is creating uh, access to education, regardless of geography gender or ability. Uh, and so whether you are a SOC analyst or you're a user, uh, that level of education is super important. Uh, and we're living in a time where, you know, we're living in a digital economy uh, and that shouldn't yeah. be seen as a luxury, but it as an opportunity for everyone and everywhere. Uh, and so just recently, uh, Cisco Networking Academy uh, made a big announcement about a an audacious goal after the t- past 25 years, the Networking Academy has been equipping uh, individuals around the globe with this power. Uh, but 
we've just announced a new goal to offer digital uh, skills and training to 25 million new learners over the next 10 years. Wow. Um, and it will not only, you know, celebration of what we've done for the last 25 years, but it will, you know, help millions more people around the world to gain access to in-demand jobs, uh, empower the workforce of the future with education and career opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and so Networking Academy continues to equip learners around the world, uh, and that helps people open doors and uh, opportunity for all. So, uh, you know, over the last 25 years, 17.5 million global learners, 190 countries. Wow. Almost 12,000 academies uh, in 27 different languages. Uh, I'm looking forward to what the next 25 years will bring. And one of the things I often say to my active duty and veteran colleagues uh, is most of these courses are free. Uh, most of them are available uh, to you in the language of your choosing anywhere you want in the world uh, and just to take advantage of them. And for organizations and companies, back to your question, to uh, encourage and provide mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, learners uh, and employees the time to to learn and make that a part of day-to-day -day business. Oh, that's that's a great initiative you guys got going, and uh, I'm just super impressed to hear. As you and I know, where there's targeted to be a massive shortage of cybersecurity experts, so anything organizations can do, and frankly, that's what we're trying to do with this uh, podcast series is is really enable people to have some thoughts from industry thought leaders like yourself. So. So one question to wrap up, uh, Andy, that we always like to ask our, our industry experts like yourself, what's one thing you recommend our listeners to you know, think about or be on the lookout for over the next six to 18 months? Uh, I mean, that's an eternity in cybersecurity, I know, but um, it's, it's a continually shifting battle for, for cybersecurity um, and network security. Um, so what's one thing you, you really encourage people to think about or keep an eye on? I think we can't take our eye off the fact that staying threat informed is important. Uh, threats are going to continue to change while at the same time, you know, this hybrid cloud operating environment continues to expand our threat mm -hmm. surface and you know, change the way we operate. So visibility is going to remain key to command and control that dynamic uh, environment. So you have to be able to apply consistent policies across your private infrastructure along with your cloud, no matter whether they're in AWS, Azure, GCP, OCI, you know, the lists are as many. Um, so as organizations adopt more cloud services yeah. uh, and implement new applications and deliver, you know, new microservices, mm -hmm. uh, ensuring that you can apply uh, threat informed consistent policies uh, across that entire environment with visibility and micro segmentation uh, with a zero trust approach is going to be critical for security resiliency. No, that's a great closing point. Andy, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to to join us and share your insights and how to better secure networks. We'd ask our listeners to tune in next time for another edition of the Endace Packet Forensic Files. For more information about Endace's network packet capture platform and our integrations with our fusion technology partners like Cisco, please go to endace.com. Andy, thank you again for taking the time with us. Thank you, Michael, and uh, thanks to Endace.